Welcome to Behind Startup Lines with your host, Phil Guest. Today, I'm joined by Jamie Hamer, a dynamic entrepreneur who successfully navigated a media subscription business and is now venturing into the insurance and risk management sector. Despite no prior experience in these industries, Jamie's knack for identifying lucrative market gaps is undeniable. From his early days at Procter & Gamble and Gartner, Jamie's entrepreneurial spirit shone when he co-founded React News, a venture in the real estate news space which was acquired in just 20 months. Now, he's channeling these insights into a new venture, Bolt Warranty. In this episode, we delve deep into the art of discovering product market fit, the indicators of hitting that growth sweet spot, the intricacies of early stage funding, and the value of referral-based hiring and data-driven decisions in a startup's journey. There is a wealth of knowledge to uncover in our chat with Jamie. So let's dive in. So Jamie, welcome to Behind Startup Lines. It's great to speak with you. Um, Thank you for, for being here today. Thanks, Phil. Really appreciate the opportunity and excited for our conversation. Great. Now, what struck me about your story, Jamie, is just the background that you come from. And you had a, a corporate background originally, which you'll, you'll tell us a bit more about. And then you moved more into being an entrepreneur. But it was this approach to entrepreneurism that really caught my attention. And that was that you were looking for gaps in market. So I know that's an area we're going to explore in any great detail. But before we get into it, tell us a bit about you, your work and what you're doing today. Uh, absolutely. So I, I'll give a little background of how I got here and, and then, then move to uh, what, what what I'm currently up to. Um, so interestingly, my first job was entrepreneurial. Um, I, I decided when I was a college student, well, <laughs> firstly, I pedicabbed in Edinburgh. It was the first time I made any serious money, which as a student, you can make a lot of money. And that's, you know, taking the risk of renting a, a cycle taxi on your own back and seeing how much money you can make. And it was that, that the fact that I did well at that, that gave me the confidence to go and, and accept a quote unquote internship, um, which was really selling educational books door to door as an independent contractor. So 100% commission, taking all the risks yourself, about 3000 students do this every year, they descend on Nashville, Tennessee, a place called the Southwestern Company. Um, and they go to make money and build character and gain life skills and become part of this big alumni network, which has been um, a big uh, help for me over the years. And uh, so I did that for a couple of summers. That's how I decided to send my university summers. It was very formative. It was very hard. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, average working 80 hours a week, not drinking, et cetera, et cetera, um, to um, uh, make sure I had a good foothold on the corporate ladder. And I parlayed that into, you know, my, my thoughts on entrepreneurism were loved it, loved running my own business, have no idea about business itself other than this direct sale, couple of direct sales jobs. So um, when entrepreneurs ask me, you know, what I'd recommend uh, in terms of finding a niche in the market. I say, look, to, to find a particularly a B2B niche, which is what I, the side of business I've always enjoyed, business selling businesses rather than, rather than individuals, you really do need to understand a market. So go into that market and work in that market and, and understand a bit about that market. And you'll start to, A, you'll learn a whole bunch of really good things that big corporates do in terms of structuring, hiring, managing, training that you can take with you. Um, but B, you'll start to see trends and uh, things that people are asking you for that you can't provide and micro niches. Um, all of this terminology has come later, but that's that's kind of what I knew I was looking for. So five years at Procter & Gamble, a year and a half at Gardner, a year and a half at a place called Debtwire, Debtwire which is part of the Accurus Group, a, a debt-focused news service. And the biggest gap I saw in any of them, I did briefly consider going into pet food as a niche or, you know, particularly online pet food when that was becoming more and more of a trend. Um, I briefly considered moving to South Africa to, to sell risk and all solutions with Gartner or, or, or separately. Um, but the, the most obvious gap in the market I was continually asked for was real estate specific news when I was at Dewar because a lot of people were doing real estate and there just wasn't a, a, a leading publication that had you know, great news and, and, and relatively inexpensive access. You know, your Thomson Reuters and your Bloomberg's, and your, your the big companies did it, um, but not not well, not thoroughly. Um, went out, talked to some journalists, understood the landscape, found some journalists who wanted to start a business, started it. And I think that's the React News, that business is the one we'll talk about the most around this podcast, given that, you know, I exited back in November. I've since started an insurance technology business using a lot of going and talking to people in markets and finding out 
um, you know, where the real niche is and, and what's working in the States that isn't doesn't exist here and blah, blah, blah. We can come on to Bolt and what we do. But I think mostly we'll focus on, given I've just finished a four-year successful entrepreneur journey with, um, with React News, how that came about. Um, so yeah, I went as big as possible. Procter & Gamble, my first job, was the biggest sales organization in the world at the time, so that I could narrow my focus over time, find the right niche, and make sure that niche would have product market fit so that it would be a successful journey. Right. And what was your experience prior to that then, particularly in the real estate sector? You kind of said you saw some patterns, but you, were you actively involved in working in that sector yourself? Or was it just what you were getting asked about in those roles of, of Gartner and, and other companies? Yeah, it was really at the, the debt world role where people were asking for, for a real estate specific news service. Um, now, I had no real estate experience. I didn't know a lot about the industry. I had quite a few friends in it. So I was able to to do a lot of sort of I, I wasn't thinking of them as research interviews at the time, but they were really research interviews. You know, what what do you read at the moment? What could you read? What 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 are you not getting enough of? What is most valuable to you when you read it? And then I partnered with people who were in the industry. So journalists who are deeply embedded in the real estate industry and absolute experts. So I often think there is an advantage if you're sort of in an adjacent market without being too lost in the weeds or having doubt about something that could be done from the market itself. Um, so, yes. so that's actually kind of been my pattern. I'm sort of like the commercial guy who could kind of come into any B2B industry. And I actually like working on industries I understand and know a bit about, but aren't in per se, because that I think gives you a little bit of a competitive advantage in that you don't know what can't be done, if that makes sense. You've still got conviction. You can come in and shake things up. <laughs> yeah, and there's a couple of parts to that, that that I want to unpack a little bit further. First of all, that you had a career in corporate. You had a steady job, and you must have realized, well, you had some entrepreneurial experience originally uh, at university, but then you went into a corporate track, and then you make this decision to step out and uh, step into building your first business in a sector that you didn't have a lot of experience. Even if you knew a lot of people, you weren't operating in that market. Talk to us a bit about what making that leap was like. You know, what was the what was going through your head at the time when you thought, okay, I'm going to do this? Because you must be giving up fairly secure role with the salary and everything that went with it to build a brand new company. Yeah. What was what was going on in your head at the time? Yeah, I was. I was give, well, I gave up two different sales roles. What both of which I was making about 120 with the potential to to go up to you know 200k within within a few years. Um, I just knew that that I would be really upset with myself if I didn't. The aim had always been to go entrepreneurial, and I'm sure that's true of a lot of people listening to this podcast. You know, you listen to it because that that is a that is a focus, creating something, building something, both because you have the drive to do it and the personality to do it. Um, so I knew I had those things, and I knew they'd be wasted. And I'd, I'd, you know, even though I enjoyed massively both those roles and was learning a lot, I knew that the the, the sort of the boredom cliff was coming, <laughs> um, and uh, and I was I was going to end up as one of those tech sales people who just jumps roles every one and a half, two, three years, depending on how much money they're making and who's who's offering what in the market. And that that vision of myself didn't appeal as much to me as um, so. There's definitely a a push away from where I was going, but there was also a pull towards I'd found two and then three amazing business partners to start a business with. Um, the gap in the market was very clear from everyone I was talking to. Uh, and you know, the, my other business partners were giving up jobs they, they needed more um, in the sense that they had kids and um, you know were, were deeply embedded in the only industry that ever worked in. So their risk was, my, in my mind, it would have been really, really... Um, really poor of me to not to not go all out go all in, go all in. and was there a catalyst then that that made the group of you sort of step out and and form what was a media business uh, an area that you had no experience in other than selling books um and you decide right you know let's do this was there something that happened that that drove you to that uh, yeah i guess two things one is we we you know it was myself and and a journalist called James Buckley, um, who uh, who was working for a publication called CoStar at the time. And uh, we had agreed that we really wanted to do this. Um, we, we'd had a couple of our potential business partners fall away, but then another gent um, came on and uh, you know, who, who had been a journalist for CoStar previously, Chris, Bu oh, sorry, uh, yes, Chris, Chris Portland, sorry. Um, he, um, he, he sort of stuck his hand up and said, look, if you guys do this, I'm serious. And then we, once you have that sort of quorum where you have enough journalists you could publish every day, you know, they were very keen to find a third journalist. And that was the catalyst. But at that point, it kind of clicked. This is going somewhere. We have three people who are all in and really want to do this. And and we kind of have the team that we could do it if need be uh, now. 
and we all want to desperately for, for various push and pull reasons towards the venture. So at that point, I actually left my current job in Debtwire and moved to Gartner. Um, Gartner is an organization I'd always wanted to work with. I think Gartner, Gartner sells research to the C-suite loosely. As a, they're famous yeah. for tech, but they do everything across the spectrum, finance, risk, audit, uh, HR, you name it. Um, and uh, I'd always wanted to work there because a few friends who said there said the sales processes were awesome, the culture was awesome. All of that was true, but I knew I was kind of going to somewhere to a year to a year and a half while we built this in the background, but I couldn't be at a news organization because I didn't want to risk the covenants. Right. So that was that, that was the initial catalyst, moving to Gartner as a temporary learning, but also and enjoying myself, but also building job. Um, and the fact that enough people were all in and we could all see the vision and we were all committed to doing it. Right. So React News was really born much earlier. You were working on the background. I mean, what did that look like in the early days? Were you publishing content back then or were you just working on the idea? Uh, no, no. The journalists were still working with their current companies. So they were publishing content in the market, but but not not with React News. React News was, well, right. React News went through a few names. But not under React News. Yeah. Under React News. So, um, so we were all sort of getting together. Yeah, yeah. So as a, as a brand, it didn't exist until you all went all in. Exactly. Yeah. But we are having biweekly catch ups where we religiously sat down and planned more, brainstormed more names of people who could be in. There was another salesperson in at one point. There were three or four other journalists we were we were optimistic about that didn't pull through. But it was this core group of two to three of us um, that were were meeting and, and advancing it. So it felt like there was progress no matter what, and that that discipline and that momentum I think made a big difference. Did you have a business plan at that point? I mean, did you sit down and formalize this saying uh, in terms of who was going to do what or what success might have looked like? How, how did you how do you do that in the planning phase, if at all? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing was having a decent pitch deck. Um, and that's that's one of the things I'd, I'd really recommend to entrepreneurs is just put together a pitch deck. It doesn't need to be perfect. You don't need to know everything. You'll fill in the blanks. People will correct you, which is great. <laughs> right. Um, but you would need to have something that explains yeah. the idea that you're doing in a sort of concise you know, fairly standard way that people can digest easily and is visual with lots of numbers. So, you know, the first pick that I created was was pretty awful. Um, and it, I got a lot of help from a brilliant gentleman uh, called Nadav Rajiv, um, who I'm extremely grateful for and always will be. Um, he sat down with me, serial entrepreneur, and just helped me put together this pitch deck. I then took this pitch deck to the journalist we worked with. It was they had put together a pitch deck. Mine was better, so that gave me some credibility. <laughs> so... Uh, so um, it also had some sales numbers in it, did it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a bit of that. And I, I got sat down with another entrepreneurial friend of mine who was building a business who helped me um, uh, through the budget, uh, you know, through building a budget, you know, really basic, what we needed to expect to pay the journalists, what we expected to bring in. Um, fortunately, it's one of the few first time budgets ever that actually undercalled it by two or three X, which is which was just a fortunate coincidence. I don't think that's usually the case. Uh, certainly hasn't been the case for this business thus far, though hopefully that changes. Um, but yes, I had some financial projections in there. I had some competitor analysis that the journalist corrected me on. I had, you know, we had enough that we could build this together into something that was credible and we all believed in. So having that physical manifestation of what you're planning is, is super important. And you went and raised money for this initial idea, did you? And how did you, you fund it or did you fund it through sales early on? <laughs> it's an interesting question. I, we could have funded it through sales in retrospect, but uh, we didn't. We we thought it was important to build the tech well and to make sure we had, you know, you know eight, ten, eight, twelve months of runway. We're sort of taking all this advice from various people, and so we 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 raised um, three hundred thousand. Uh, we didn't really know much about SEIS coming in, but again, enough conversations and people start sort of telling you things and then you'll, you do the research and you realize, ah, okay, we have quite a valuable proposition because people can you know, get some of their tax money back, etc. Um, so we, it was really the journalists and their amazing real estate connections. When, when they mentioned to a couple of people they were thinking of striking out on their own, those people got very excited and we had, you know, we had very few conversations to get the backing we needed. Um, and one, um, one sort of conglomerate of real estate investors who invest in startups together all came together and gave us the, the 300 grand we were looking for. Nice. Okay. So you had one group that really got behind it, that saw the potential in what you were building. It wasn't like you had a cap table of hundreds of friends and family all giving you 10 grand here or there to, to make that up. That that must have been really uh, encouraging at that point. You had the idea, you got the backing, you're ready to go. What did you do with money? <laughs> uh, 
had it sat in the bank and, and had it gain interest. So we 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 raised three hundred grand. We only ever tapped into eighty k of that. Um, <laughs> so that was that was kind of annoying in retrospect. Although you know our wow. investors were were wonderful <laughs> investors in every way. Left us alone. Um, honored a handshake agreement at the end yeah. to to give us back some equity if we were successful. Um, were incredibly helpful in in asking other market participants to adopt our our fledging service. Um, bought the service themselves as an early customer. So uh, so that was and it was a relatively big contract for us. So. You know, can't complain overall. It was an absolutely brilliant relationship, but you know, a bit annoying in retrospect to have raised more than you you planned. But we, we, you know, we had money for a rainy day, and I think because it was all of our first startups, that that downside protection and you know reassurance that we had money in the bank, if in, in the worst case, was was helpful from a uh, from a mental, psychological perspective as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, safety net. If you don't mind sharing it, are you willing to share how much of it, uh, the company had to give away to get that initial funding? Uh, yeah, I don't think that's 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 information that I'm not unable to share. So we, um, let's see, we gave away 25% of the company to, um, to you know, it was a it was a, a meeting with these investors who were much more experienced than us. It was all of our first time fundraising, um, and they came down from the valuation that indicated previously. And we sort of said, you know, in the back of our minds, we were thinking, oh, you know. I didn't really understand this SAIS thing, but you know, I thought that should be some benefit to them. And um, I uh, thinking, wow, that seems like a lot to give away, given what you previously. So I sort of protested a bit, and they gave us an upside option as a result of that protesting, which ended up being very valuable. Um, so, uh, you know, if I had it again, I would know more about SAIS. I would be able to, to articulate that benefits they were getting properly. I would have done more research on valuations in the market, especially for one with which projected to get to revenue so quickly. And I would have indicated we intended to shop around to get a better deal. As it is for first time raisers with no idea what we're doing up against people who are serial investors, I'm, I, I can't complain about how we did. And we got very lucky. We were offered that sort of upside option. It's not technically possible in SAIS. It was a handshake agreement um, as, it was, as well. Um, you, you've mentioned this a few times. There may be some people listening that are not familiar with the the tax breaks that exist. Uh, yeah, no worries. And it's worth understanding whichever jurisdiction you're in. It's worth understanding, um, you know, what the tax breaks are for entrepreneurs because there always will be something, or they, in most geographies there are. Um, the UK. One of the reasons the UK has such a thriving uh, ecosystem for startups is that how generous they are for early stage investors investors in startups. Um, so it makes it a lot easier for friends and family or even more institutional investors and, 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 and you know, serial angels, of which we have many in the UK, to invest. Um, so loosely, SEIS is Small Enterprise Investment Scheme. NEIS is Enterprise Investment Scheme. So the first 250K of investment a company takes, the investors can get certificates back, which allow them to claim 50% back on income tax. So as long as you're, you know, invest a moneyed person making income, you can benefit from those, you know, effectively halving your risk and getting 50% of your money back quite quickly. If the business fails, you get a further 25 to 30% back in either income or capital gains relief. So ultimately, you only have 20 to 25% capital risk on that from that first 250k. So at the time, it was 150k. So half of the investment into our firm was was underwritten by this. The other half, which goes up to 2 million of the invested in the company, gives you 30% income tax relief. So then your capital risk is in the sort of 45% range. Um, so really, really generous schemes to encourage early stage investment. It's one of the reasons first that the UK has such a good early startup scheme and lots of startups getting off the ground. The fact that those uh, tax breaks don't necessarily continue is one of the reasons why scale up is a little harder in the UK. Jamie, thank you for explaining that. I'm sure there are some people listening that where this is new to them. And yeah, there are some phenomenal uh, breaks there to help entrepreneurs build businesses. And, and yours is a great story of, of how you do that. Equally, you know, you raised more money than you needed. And I guess that that, uh, that certainly didn't help as you were gaining momentum because you built a very successful business here. So how, where did you start? I mean, you, what, you were doing the sales side of this and the journalists were working on the content side and you know, what did the early days look like? <laughs> they were hectic. Um, so uh, I, the way I described myself um, when we went out to market was I was the person who was going to do everything that I needed to do. As I, you know, I felt like an outsider. I hadn't worked in the industry. I'd never started a startup before. I was really bluffing a lot of this. Um, and, uh, and you know, these guys had quit their jobs and, and, and had young kids and were reliant on this being a success. So the way I describe it to everyone is I will work as hard, I'm the person who works as hard as they can to allow the journalists to just be journalists and for everything else in the business to work. 
So uh, I was fortunate to have some great mentors who built businesses before who helped me. You know, this is how you send out a finance report every month. This is how you structure a, a really basic CRM. Um, we had a couple of amazing consultants to the business who came in and helped us on culture. On, and I, you know, I had a name of having one person who I'd interacted with come that we could get better at every week. Um, so it's a very iterative process. We got a lot of things wrong. We all worked well past midnight because none of our systems actually worked on day one. We started publishing on day two, thank goodness. We started uploading all the users. We got told off by our investors for uploading their global teams when really we only published UK news at first. Um, yeah, if you'll excuse or edit out my language, it's a bit of a shit show, but um, it was a lot of fun learning as you go and we got through it because we had we had such good product market fit. We had 10 customers when we launched, another 10 sign up in weeks one and two. Um, and these are significant financial organizations who are paying us decent money. So um, that product market fit got us through the fact that we were um, doing a lot of things wrong. And that that's kind of, that you know, you can do anything wrong as long as you, <laughs> the initial idea is, you know, is well-researched enough and, you know, has traction enough, then, you know, it, it's worth persevering through the mistakes you're going to make. Now, I'm fascinated by this whole area of product market fit. Um, and it's often the one thing that obviously everybody is looking for. And it sounds like you discovered it very early in building React. Talk to me about really what product market fit means to you and how do businesses know that they've got it? Well, the simplest way that you know to got it is people willing to pay for your product. And not hypothetically, yes, I would pay for that, like actually putting money down, whether it's a small amount or a large amount. That's that's really the only way in my mind to prove that traction. So to some extent, which is true of Bolt right now, um, my, new, my new InsureTech venture, we won't know until we have product market fed, until we, we start trading to a large extent. Because people have told us that they'll pay for this and implement it and buy it. But then, you know, that's different than, than actually doing it. Um, but you can get good indications. Like if enough people are saying it, if enough people have bought similar things, if enough, you know, because the nice thing was we weren't reinventing the wheel. We were just taking something that was done by really dozens of other publications, consolidating the best of it, taking the bits that people really valued and doing more of that. So we were publishing faster. We were publishing more proprietary information. We were publishing more investment articles. We were publishing more people moves, all the stuff that people could take action on. Hence the name React. Um, and uh, and that so that was really our very clear niche USP for just just the UK and mostly just London at first. Although we actually we were doing a lot more of the regions than some of our publications from day one. Um, so it was you know we kind of knew people wanted that niche. We'd had enough understanding from the journalists talking to people about it every day. I mean we kind of had hundreds of user interviews, so we had a little bit more conviction we would have product market fit. I think than yes. than most startups because we had more data, we had more interest, we had more 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 conversations right and that manifests itself in in customers buying what were they buying in the end of the day were they buying advertising to this group were they buying subscriptions technology what what was the product yeah i would definitely recommend any um any any startup in its early planning stages find a way to be a subscription business um, it made us a lot more valuable it made our revenue a lot more predictable it grew year over year we could have got an advertising model which most of our competition but a that would have been a much more difficult business for people to invest in and trust uh B, COVID ate up all advertising revenue in a horrific way, where subscriptions obviously continued. Um, and uh, C, I'm pretty confident the whole advertising disruption model will be disrupted by um, some uh, by various technological forces over the next few years. So I'm not, not overly optimistic about those businesses when they come across my desk. <laughs> yeah, and I've got a background in advertising as well. And the, the rise and fall of, of the markets for advertising make it hugely unpredictable. Uh, as a business model, subscription uh, definitely the the way to go forward. So, was there a point when you were winning subscriptions then that you thought, okay, yeah, we've hit that product market fit? Was that the point when you were more than covering the cost of the business and you thought, yeah, we're onto something here, or or was it the hockey stick? Was it the kind of the growth trajectory that suggested, you know, we've really found something here that the market's prepared to continue buying? Uh, so uh, this is not. So I'm going to tell a bit of a bit of a self-deprecating story, but also um, a, a story that sort of proves that React was a little bit of an unusual business in that people knew the journalists so well they were willing to subscribe before we had content because we were able to give them example content stuff the journalists had written before. They were so established in the market that we had you know ten customers pre-launch. So I actually decided I was going to take a holiday just because I knew I was about to go on a intense you know long journey, um, which we had projected to be five seven years. Um, and so I went on a yacht in Croatia, as as many do. Uh, 
<laughs> stupidly. And uh, but uh, then suddenly I was getting all these emails when I was out. I was always Greece. We were so I was on the Aegean Sea, and um, uh, and I started getting all these messages from the journalists being like, "Hey, this person's interested. Like, can you negotiate with them?" So I ended up working seven hours a day and buying a mobile uh, internet hotspot from this boat while all my friends were out partying and having a great time and visiting all these Greek islands. I was just sitting there typing away, having calls with you know huge REITs in the UK and significant funds and law firms and agents saying, "Yeah, cool. Well, you know if." James Buckley, David Hatcher, and Chris Borland are starting this new service. So yeah, we want to buy it. What discounts can you give us for 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 being first movers here? Um, so it's pretty pretty crazy time. So so we we had a bit of both as we figured things out. As we bought a more journalist, we bought a more salesperson. We had a little bit of a hockey stick, but we had a pretty big bump at first as one of the biggest banks in the UK, two or three of the biggest funds. Our first customer was the UK's biggest REIT, which made name dropping pretty easy. Um, that's real estate investment trust for, for um, those listening. Uh, so just a really big public um, fund buying and selling real estate. Um, so that that made the credibility and the social proof pretty high. And so we had a pretty good time from day one. And I'd put that down to the preparation. Like the, a couple of journalists quit their job a little earlier, started putting down, started talking to people, started talking to their sources they already had in the market. We kind of like, you know, within that niche, these guys were celebrities. So we kind of had credibility already. Um, and it was sort of my miss that we weren't going to be doing business from you know t might might be minus two um because we had spent the time to get it to get a lot of aspects of it right most importantly the team most importantly the team great uh, and as this was happening jamie as you were hitting this kind of hyper growth in the early days what were the competition doing because there were lots of established publications and other media providers how did they react to this and did they start copying what you were doing we were always terrified of that. And one thing we did really well was monitor our risks on a month-to-month -month and, and quarter-to-quarter basis. You know, is property week going to react? Is the state's going to, is that going to, you know, it, you know, property week at that point? Um, or is BizNow going to become a paid service and hire more journalists, a big US entrance? So, you know, these the property week and the state's gazette were both very focused on, I mean, they both did charge, but very small amounts for their online news. Um the, the advantage and then there, there was co-star the sort of big dog but not really focused on the data side of things not journalism so we had we were monitoring all these the nice thing was a lot of these our journalists came over from those publications and were the best so losing them at the same time would somewhat hamstrung the competition in terms of having experienced journalists getting exclusives and being able to train those younger journalists um so so we we had the double whammy of bringing people over from competition in a in a, in a sort of a, a niche market a niche part of the market which was great um but also, they, these these businesses are just really old. <laughs> like, probably we could only gone online a couple of, uh, you know, it's a 60-year-old business. I think it's States Gazette's even older. I think I've got it the right way around. It's like 120 years old. These guys were really used to events and advertising models and really used to being the only sort of established players in town. CoStar 100% focused on the data, like telling everyone in the business, sell more data. You can't sell news by itself. So we had all these risks, but it, we just, we got lucky in that we really went one way when everyone else was going the other way. And then... COVID hit and because we were online only subscription news service it, it was you know it didn't really give our events and advertising based competition a chance to react <laughs> pun not intended but relevant right 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 how big did the company get before we sold um which was uh, after only 20 months uh we had uh 18 employees and we're turning over just over 2 million and most of those journalists? No. By that point, we had a product owner, best hire we ever made. Very happy to, to touch on the benefits of how great having a good product owner is. Um, seven journalists and then 10 commercial people of some description. That's that's. I think that's right. Those numbers might be slightly wrong. Well, we've talked about product market fit, so it would lead nicely into talking about the advantages of having a product owner. You're saying that that's one of the best hires that you made. Um, what, I, I'm interested in the relationship between product, sales, and marketing. Tell us a bit about that hire and, and what they brought to the party. Absolutely. Well, before you are uh, have a product owner, your founders need to be the product owner. Because we talked about product market fit and really understanding what your product is, what your product does, what it needs to do, what its niche is. Being able to translate that into what needs to happen technically for any business that involves any tech. And you know, we weren't we weren't particularly technologically advanced. We're, you know, a WordPress site with Mailchimp. You know, pretty simple off the shelf technology, but all that needs to be integrated in a way that works. 
And frankly, we because we didn't have a, none of us had a tech background whatsoever. Um, we we went about it, and luckily we had some good advice. So we kept our costs for the initial build low. But as we started to be profitable, we really wanted we really over invested in some very simple tech, and we spent a lot of time on it too, wanting various features, not understanding why it took so long, not understanding what who we were buying from and whether they were any good. Switching to tech tech agencies at one point, which was painful, both in terms of the procurement and the actual move over. Um, and probably not switching to the right technical agency either, which was which was a frustration. Um, so we spent a lot of time and a lot of money on that, which could have been spent selling and publishing, which you know should have been the highest purpose and what we prioritized our time with. So two advantages of a product owner. One is they take over the role that everyone else needs to be doing in a really good way of going out and talking to people and understanding what those people want in a you know a way that honors the way you're supposed to do product interviews, you know looking at the past and looking at reality rather than hypotheticals. Um, you know, what people actually do rather than what they say they're going to do, which is completely made up. Um, and the other advantage is if they can talk a level of tech, then they can keep your tech spend lo- lower. And uh, so, I mean, I'm, I'm talking from the perspective of people who are starting businesses that are either tech enabled or tech businesses that don't have a tech background. You need someone in there. If, even if you are from a technical background, and technical back people will probably know this more, having a product owner to come in and go out and talk to the market and just make sure everything you're building makes sense and coming back with valuable insights that might change you know, the direction in which you build that tech or the speed at which you build that tech or the iteration pattern, you know, what you need to test, what assumptions are risky, what assumptions are safe. That person is so valuable and, and should be, in my mind, either part of a founding team or uh, a very early hire. Right. And was your product person going out with the sales team or was there some sort of feedback loop coming from the sales team to the product to, to influence that? Um, and, and was he talking to customers, non-customers? What, what sort of conversations were happening? Yeah. Uh, so he was this brilliant gent who I hope won't mind mentioning him called Sam Buddington, uh, who since moved on to uh, Spotify. Um, so he um, he just came in and sort of said, right, okay, you guys are doing brilliantly, but there's no science behind what you're doing. <laughs> you're just sort of, um, you know, going out there and obviously you're publishing news. So you get loads of inbound leads, which is great. Um, like, you know, really cool business, but let's, let's put some processes in place here. This is madness. Um, so he took over the tech relationship almost instantly. Thank goodness. Um, and so that saved us time and money and stress. He uh, started talking to people in the market, uh, you know, just to, uh, the, the journalist introduced him to really high end people, started to understand a bit more. And so he started inputting into the, the direction of our media tech. That, I mean, that took like three, four months of learning, but he was then able to say, right, we really need to look for more people moves. And how can we standardize the way in which we you know, publish people moves and find out about them earlier? Because that's what people like the most. Those are our best read articles. So he started showing us metrics of how he could improve everything. And then the sales team, he built us a full dashboard right. of our outreach and, you know, helped us standardize. So he really just, he was really just a systems guy that well, not just a systems guy, like a really valuable systems guy who came in and, and made all of our parts of our business more sophisticated and data driven. Um, and then also went out and talked to the market and came back with some insights, which the journalists took into account. Although I'd say on that side of the business, they already knew the market pretty well. But data was a key part of what they did. They looked at product usage, which in your sense was what were the most read articles? What was the most interactive content? They really understood the problem that you were solving by going to the market, talking to those connections that your journalists who had credibility and had an incredible network. And then they were able to crunch all of that into something that said, no, let's organize ourselves a bit better because there are there are bigger pots of success to be had in various parts of what you were doing. Uh, and that's the function. If I summarize the function of a product person, a good product person helps you. Yeah, partially. And if we'd had him earlier, then we built this entire thing called the deal tracker, which was a great concept. You know, people can um, uh, people can ch- can choose different companies they track and get real time notifications on their phone whenever we publish. They don't need to scroll through our news. Like if Landsec's doing a big deal and you're an agent who sells Landsec, you can see instantly. Be one of the first to know. We're thinking maybe even before we publish the news, sometime you can know. Hey, Landsec's just bought this, and you can call up your guy Landsec and be like, "Congratulations, by the way, you know, let's do some business." Um, which is one of the primary functions of our news. Um, so we 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 spent time and money planning on doing this, but uh, it didn't end up getting used and we didn't really know why. And it, it turns out, you know, people, well, the, there may have been a few reasons, and, you know, whether people want to receive news on an app, maybe, maybe not, uh, whether the, the mech, whether we, we marketed it well enough, uh, whether people knew about it. You know, we did end up having 
I think probably 100, 200 really intense users. But, you know, having a product person plan out that journey and actually do research in advance would have saved us time and money and just going ahead and building something and hoping they will come, which is, I think, the biggest mistake that startups make. Just build something because it seems like a good idea. And then suddenly you find out no one's used it. You wasted your time and money. That's an interesting uh, development around this product market fit idea where you've got feature market fit where you develop one particular feature in the hope that it's going to be something that fulfills a need. And you've got indications that this is what the market want. And then that that feed gets used, that feature gets used by a small group, but never really flips into the mainstream. Um, and I haven't thought about that before, this concept of feature market fit as a subset of product market fit. you have a view on that? Well, you're always iterating uh, your product. And I, know, I guess you know something's going to work and some things aren't. Um, you can do a lot of that work beforehand with good market yeah. research. Uh, before Sam came on board, we didn't do any of that. We just <laughs> did what we thought was right. Um, and so um, so I, I, think, I, I think that by adding really valuable features, you can hugely increase your margins and products. And we use the deal tracker as an excuse, even though it wasn't being used very much, to up all our prices, up all our renewals, right. uh, incentivize people. They could have the deal tracker for free if they, if they bought now versus you know, having, if they went through a trial, then they have to pay for it. Like we, we used it as a great commercial mechanism, right. so it was worth doing regardless. Yeah. Yeah. But actually having that fit and something that's actually valuable as an entity to its own that maybe you can spin out or maybe becomes your primary business. Um, ideally, that requires some user research. I, I think, you know, just to summarize a little bit, sometimes it's worth going ahead with features if they're going to have enough commercial benefit. I'm saying that as a commercial guy, obviously. Yeah. Um, but it's better to go ahead with things that are going to have feature market fit and, and become major parts of your business. Yeah, well, it sounded like you used that feature very effectively, even if it didn't uh, materialize into a heavy usage part of the product. It was a valuable part of the, the commercial offering. So 20 months, you said you started the business and then you got an offer to buy the business within 20 months of setting it up. What a fantastic story. Um, how did it come about? Just talk us through that. And and what were the emotions like at that point when you suddenly had someone knocking on the door prepared to pay you for this product that you've spent years putting together? Yeah, um, I, I'm not going to go into name details because I'm not sure how much I'm going to be, but loosely we just got a call through the main line from a major US firm. I mean, React was bought by Green Street. That's public information. Um, but, uh, you know, a gentleman from Green Street called up and asked for the owner of the business. And I said, I'm, I'm one of them. <laughs> um, we were really weren't expecting anyone to have any interest in us until we'd sort of had a bit more saturation in the UK and done a bit more. We'd, we'd just hired our first international journalist. So we were looking to do what no new service had done before and, and conquer Europe as well as the UK, despite all the language issues. Um, and so we'd hired a, mm -hmm. a, a wonderful journalist called Julie Cruz, who spoke um, French and German uh, and could sort of start that that push. But we weren't, you know, we didn't think of ourselves as 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 you know we, we had some interest for another party as well um but like at a very low valuation that we weren't interested in um and so we we weren't considering um a sale uh but we we met, had an initial meeting with with green street um thought they were great they thought we were great so um we 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 went into i mean we were open to offers but just speculatively we definitely weren't expecting to sell and then it, it, it ended up coming to fruition over uh another probably less than six months Right. And the offer was just attractive enough for you guys to think, yeah, we've got something here. Let's take advantage of this because you stayed with the business after the acquisition. Um, you stayed as their head of sales for a period, I guess, was the earn out. Um, but it was, yeah, it, it must have been a great feeling after 20 months of setting a business up to get the sort of offer that, that worked for all the founders uh, and the investors. We definitely had mixed feelings, right? Because we had envisioned this being a sort of more five to seven year, more empire building, maybe transferring it into more of a lifestyle business. I do think there was some, you know, uh, some of us in the, the leader team probably wanted more of a lifestyle business and some wanted more of a, a hugely expansive business. And so the rates of expansion were probably something that we we, we would have had to sit down and talk about in more detail and, and were talking about at the time. Um, ultimately, we were all not expecting to sell. So selling your sort of baby that you that that you know we'd been planning for so long and that, that meant so much to all of us was was really tough but the offer was you know when we sat down and weighed the pros and cons we, we decided to go for it yeah i was going to ask you how you got everybody on the same page then if you had people with different aspirations um and i guess if the offer's big enough that's often a a pretty hefty lever to get people all lined up but uh was there something that you had to do as a team to come to terms with what was the right way to move forward or was, was consensus fairly quick to happen? Well, what I would say is we as a team 
um, as a lead team for, for React. We had incredible communication with each other. I've never been on a busier WhatsApp channel. Um, we were always, you know, scheduling catch-ups pretty much ad hoc. We One of the cool things about React that I've loved to implicate in my other businesses and I'm trying to with Bolt is we basically didn't have internal meetings. Like, if there was something important, we would get together and have a quick huddle, and it would never more than 15 minutes because the journalists were so busy out there in the market talking to content and, you know... Certainly at first, I, I didn't have a spare second, which was a wonderful feeling of flow. Uh, you know, a lot of this probably in retrospect and ignoring the stress. But, um, you know, we, we, we were able to make such quick decisions. In fact, it was one of our values was making quick decisions. So the initial offer when it came through was a quick no. The second and third offers were, were took a little longer. We took a couple of days, did pros and cons list, came back and sort of anonymously submitted where we were in terms of a percentage between one and 100. And it added up. Yeah, great. Um, so successful closure of, of that business, you stayed with it for a period afterwards, and then you have this idea to start a new business. Tell us about what you're working on today, because this is a, another great example of an industry that you had, what, no experience in beforehand? And now you decide to start a new business, what, which is about, how old is it now? Six months Six old? Six months old, yeah. And and I've been in and around insurance my entire life. So I had a, a decent idea of the industry. My dad worked in catastrophe insurance for most of his career and now analyzes insurance links, hedge funds. Um, right. A lot of my friends, uh, some of my family background is, is from Bermuda. So they a lot of my friends went into insurance, particularly broking. I'm glad I didn't because I probably would have gout by now. It's a very heavy drinking industry. Um, not right. that real estate is too, but I, you know, I was kind of on the periphery of real estate being rather than being in the industry, which is helpful um, in that regard. Uh, so um, Bolt is an insurance technology firm that will help online retailers to offer product protection, kind of like your Apple Care or the, the warranties you can get on Amazon or Argos on your furniture and electronics and, and you know, phone, you know, the mobile, the, uh, mobile protection, which, uh, which your mobile network will offer to you. So we're going to allow smaller stores to do that, starting with Shopify, WooCommerce. Uh, we're going to help businesses to uh, protect all their assets by integrations through accountancy software like Xero. So it's much more of an actual technology business. And it also has this insurance element, which is uh, a really interesting variable. Um, and this comes from a similar sort of insight. What's working in the U.S.? What other businesses are out there? You know, there's a huge company called Extend in the U.S. that's done very well in terms of fundraising that's, that's doing this sort of thing. Um, there are uh, a number of other European startups at a sort of similar stage or slightly ahead that are doing it in other countries, but no one really doing it in the UK. So that was a big insight. And then it's just a really big market that, that is sort right. of there for the taking. So I just took about six months researching this after I, I left Green Street, came up with this idea, had brought back some of the the React team and people who I've worked with previously, those who had left who were outside of my confidence, obviously. <laughs> um, being, you know, having to be very careful of those, as you might expect. Um, brought back some of the similar people and, and also added a tech element. We have two tech co-founders as well. Um, so more of a technological and more of a financial play this time, but something I've always kind of been interested in and something that has those core values of being B2B, effectively being subscription, and where the majority of the cost in the business is tech and people, which I always think are good things to aim for in B2B models if you are so wired. Right. When you look back at the journey for React News and you look at what you're building now with Bolt, what are you doing differently? What have you said to yourself consciously, yeah, I'm going to make sure I don't make the same mistake again as I'm building this next business? Yeah, well, fortunately, a lot of those mistakes were just ignorant. So, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm better at running the finan accurate financials for a business now. I'm better at designing a sales system rather than just hiring some salespeople and saying, go talk to people. Um, you know, these are all things that you develop over time, and that the corporate experience with Green Street was also was also helpful. In. Um, but the biggest thing is user research. So, because we don't have journalists who have 50 conversations a day in the market and because we, we have needed to go out and talk to e-retailers and hire a head of sales who is, has e-retailers himself and has been in the market for ages. Um, so another one of those people who sort of like sort of like having a journalist in that he comes with a bunch of market research. But my main job, apart from fundraising and finding insurers, has been going out and doing market research on the insurer because we're now creating a marketplace. So it's a little bit different. It's not just we have a product, we're selling it. We're connecting insurers and claims administrators to retailers who are then selling to their customers. So it's a little bit more. So, uh, you know, going out and talking to people and making sure we're doing things right and what we're going to do is actually going to get to revenue and ha have significant revenue and have a significant market has been the biggest difference. We were much more sure of that in React. It is a bit more of a potentially higher upside, but riskier play. 
Right. So really uh, researching the market, talking to those that you are going to serve, understanding the ecosystem, that, that's a key piece of advice that you give to any entrepreneur. Anything else that you would suggest to, to those starting out that uh, yeah, would help them on their journeys? You can't do it alone. Uh, I mean, you can. Some people do, but it's it's crazy. And you know, you, it would require a, a mental fortitude that certainly I don't possess. Um, I was really lucky to have three other amazing gentlemen to lean on at the beginning of of, of last startup. And this time, if, if my co-founder, Tori, hadn't said, yes, I'm happy to come on you this journey and take a pay cut versus why we ask elsewhere, because, you know, this sounds like a good idea and, and I you know, enjoy working with you, then then we wouldn't have got off the ground. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't have been able to do all the things we'd able to do without her and bringing on Steve now has been a huge boost and bringing on our two tech co-founders. So um, I'm not going to say it's team first idea better. It's both simultaneously, but you need the idea and the team to win. How was it finding tech co-founders or uh, early tech employees this time around? And, and where does, if, if you're a commercial person that really needs that tech uh, partner, how do you go about finding somebody? So the the number one way to find anyone, including almost every sales hire I've made over the past five years, with only a couple of exceptions, um, and um, uh, certainly all of the co-founders has been referrals. Just go to people who work in tech and say, who do you know who fits these characteristics, right. who's business minded, but also a coder, who can lead a tech team, but also um, is able to do the dirty work themselves from day one, who you know isn't particularly happy where they are and would jump at the chance, and who's a bit of a risk taker who value equity over salary. So yeah, find, to find those characteristics you're looking for, to find your values, to find what you need, and then just go out and ask everyone you know for those people, and you'll come up with a brilliant sort list. Um, in this case, we didn't actually find a co-founder CTO. We decided to start with an agency as we continued that search because we wanted to break ground and get going. Um, you know, I'd put some money into the business and, you know, we wanted to wanted to build the initial MVP while we were waiting. Um, we then contracted with a tech agency. We did this lovely um, beauty parade where we had a bunch of different tech agencies in. And uh, we... Uh, talk, you know, all of them were great. All of them were great credentials. All of them had built like Shopify plugins, like we were going to before. Amazing. Um, and then, uh, you know, we probably talked to about twelve different options, including some uh, to people who I was hoping would come on as co-founders, but decided not to at the last minute. Sucks, but these these things happen. A lot of things going on in people's lives. Mm -hmm. One was having a baby. Blah blah blah. Um, but then this one tech team just showed a disproportionate interest. Drove up to London, bought the full team to meet us. Uh, sort of said, this is really exciting. We don't get to work on stuff like this that's more strategic and long haul before most of our business is, is around security and data analysis. And that's fine, but we want to do more of this stuff. Here's a right. market leading offer. We re and we really we want to provide you with free consultancy and be really involved. And then they, they so we, we were blown away by that enthusiasm and, and their capability and said, yes. Then two months into the build, they're like, we really like this. We want to invest. And so I think... If you talk to enough people, you'll find people like that who are just brilliant and fun and want to really actually like your idea rather than wanting your money. Um, and so they invested into us and are now giving us engineering capacity for free. Their CTO of the, the tech agency sits on our board um, and will be when we when our round vests. So that agency model is becoming more common with agencies investing into companies. But this is the first time they've done it or maybe the second time. So um that is a really exciting model and a really exciting way of finding people who are already brilliant and have that variable team resources at their disposal. We kind of got lucky, but the way you get lucky is to talk to enough people. That's a really good story. And it also taps into this belief that I have that it's more about show, show me rather than tell me. And there's nothing more showy than you know preparing to get the people there to, to demonstrate the value you can bring to ultimately invest in your idea because they completely buy into it. So it's a really good good example. Um, we have a bit of a tradition, Jamie, here on uh, Behind Startup Lines. I get to ask you a question that has a slightly military theme, because okay. if you hadn't caught on to the, the whole concept is, this is all about building businesses, which is like operating behind enemy lines. You know, no plan surviving first contact with the market, you know, having to reach a point yep. of extraction, whether that's an IPO, trade sale or an acquisition. And, and you've been on that journey and the, the story has been fascinating. So thank you very much uh, for sharing it with us today. My question for you, my behind startup lines question for you, that is, if you were to look at your career so far uh, as a battlefield, which strategic maneuver has been the most effective for you uh, as you go on this journey? I don't just say this because it's front of mind for the last question, but um, 
strategic i'm trying to try to i, I don't know that much about military maneuvers so i not i don't know if i'm going to parse it in the right language but um certainly uh putting together the lead team and the uh and then the then then recruiting under them and allowing them to 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 find their own people so building the army i suppose would be the would be i mean i, I the thing i'm the yeah, most proud putting of putting the team together exactly yeah. when i when i put, look back at react i'm most proud of the people we employed and how much we built them up and how well they've done as a result of that in their careers and um you know both financially and from a fulfillment point of view um and the way we did that was hiring again through referrals so we we, we built it on the well i mean on the journalist team you had to hire through referrals because there are only 20 really good real estate journalists in europe I know i'm making that number up it may be more maybe less but it's somewhere around that number so everyone knows everyone and knows of everyone so that has to be by referrals now on our um on our commercial team my head of sales henrietta came from selling books which i referenced back at the beginning so she sold five summers i think of, of educational books door to door so i knew she was going to be a good salesperson she referred georgia bias who was our top like sdr junior salesperson or tie with izzy hills who was her friend who she referred over like you know i got really lucky in the two of my good friends um including tori my current business partners were the the two head of the, the entire partnership team for europe for Cirque du soleil so they'd been vetted and like trained and, and were incredible negotiators. And obviously, Cirque Delay went under with the pandemic. So suddenly they were both available. So and we needed an account management team. <laughs> so it was just, you know, a bunch of serendipitous hires a lot. But all of these were known to us. All of these were known to one of the team. We didn't hire anyone who wasn't a referral um, for the first. Whoa. Like the, uh, uh, po until post the well post the acquisition, with at least the first thirty months of React existence, all hires were referrals. And uh, it's funny, I took some guidance on it um, from a mentor. I said, you know, I'm a bit worried we're getting a bit, uh, you know, uh, homogenous. Like everyone's because we're hiring the same people who know each other. And the, my mentor was like, you're being stupid. Like referrals on average last with the company three times as well as long. On average, they perform about forty percent better. Stop worrying about that stuff. Hire people you know. You can't afford to miss hire as a startup. So just hire only hire from referrals ever until you can you know, avoid it and worry about everything else later. Brilliant, brilliant advice, Jamie. Thank you. I mean, there are lots of areas we could continue talking about, and I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to to talk to us here on uh, Behind Startup Lines. Where can people get in touch with you? Where can they learn more about Bolt? Uh, yeah, give them some details. Yeah, awesome. Well, we'd love to hear from, I guess, potential investors, although we're very close to closing our first round, as is. Um, but you know, for, for future rounds, we're, we're quite ambitious and expansive and looking to raise a, a proper seed round early next year. Um, we would love to hear from e-commerce, either influencers or uh, e-commerce stores themselves, people who can refer us on to major e-commerce stores in repairable categories. Um, and just people who are generally you know, interested in, in the business and have any questions. So the best way to contact me is jamie.hamer, H-A-M-E-R, at boltprotect.io. Uh, and I'm also you know, a, a Jamie Hamer on LinkedIn. Um, you know, I, I, I'm very active there and planning to be more active as we continue this journey and, and, and sell through LinkedIn as well as various other ways. Um, so I would love to hear from anyone, love to hear from entrepreneurs who, who I think, who believe, you know, particularly the B2B space where I can be of most value. Um, and, uh, otherwise Phil, I really appreciate the, the time, the amazing listening skills and the, uh, the ability to share the little I've learned. Well, thank you, Jamie, for, for joining me today. It's been absolutely fascinating and I wish you all the best with Bolt and I look forward to seeing the next wave of success for, for what you're building there. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Thanks, Phil. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you for tuning into Behind Startup Lines with me, Phil Guest. I hope Jamie's insights have inspired and equipped you for your own personal entrepreneurial journey. Remember, every founder and every startup has a story, and the lessons learned pave the way for future innovators. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and share it with your network. And if you know any other founders that would be willing to tell their story, please ask them to get in touch. Until next time... This is Behind Startup Lines and me, Phil Guest, signing off. Over and out. Yeah.